Good morning. Would you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and with sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would illumine your word. It tells us that you moved men and prophets of old to speak of you, and so we need you to speak of you again to us today through your word. So we ask that you would prepare our minds and hearts and eyes to see and hear and understand your word this morning for your glory and our good. Amen. Simon Wiesenthal was a Holocaust survivor who wrote about a real-life experience he had with a terminally wounded Nazi soldier in his book, The Sunflower. In the book, the soldier tells him he's seeking a Jew to forgive him because of a crime that had haunted him. He had committed the crime one year prior, and the man confessed to having destroyed by fire and by armament a house full of some 300 Jews. He states that as the Jews tried to leap out of the window to escape the burning building, that he gunned them down. And after the soldier finished his story, he asked Wiesenthal to forgive him, at which point Wiesenthal stands and leaves the room without speaking further to the soldier. Wiesenthal goes on in the rest of the book to essentially consider this thing. How could he offer forgiveness for someone else's sin done to someone else? How do you forgive someone for something not done to you? Maybe let me illustrate it like this. Say one of your mother is killed by a thief that breaks in and ends up killing her. It would be the most outlandish and ridiculous thing for me to go to that thief and say, oh, you seem, for, for, you know, you seem remorseful and repentant. We're just going to go ahead and forgive you. You won't tell the authorities. And me come back and tell you they were really repentant. We're not going to pursue justice. That would be absurd. Or take just from a financial perspective. If someone hits your car, and then I go to that person and say, it's okay, you don't have to pay for that. They're a really forgiving person. But that's just a ridiculous thing. I cannot forgive you for a sin you did to somebody else. 
And in this chapter, we're going to deal with this issue of forgiveness. But see, the issue is, how does forgiveness work exactly? See, in Nineveh, the Ninevite culture was one built on warfare. I could read you accounts, but I wouldn't really want to do so with some of the small ears in here. I'll give you just two of the accounts. Is that they, they were of such horrendous, vile warfare. They would go into a city, and when someone put up the great fight and, and would, would fight against them and not want to just yield and give them taxes, they would go and find the, the strongest, most able-bodied men and warriors, and they'd skin them alive and hang their skins out front of the city to demonstrate They'd rip children from mother's wombs, and on and on it goes. They were a heinous, vile, disgusting culture. So Jonah is called in this book, in chapter 1, to go and say, 40 days and the city's destroyed. To go and to offer them the possibility of forgiveness. How does Jonah offer the Ninevites forgiveness? How is he to do that? Now, as we will see, there's also an issue of Jonah doesn't want to offer them forgiveness. So he up and splits, as we saw in chapter 1. Now, the book of Jonah is is in parallel. Chapter 1 and chapter 3, you have God calling Jonah, and then you have pagans repenting, the pagan sailors. Chapter 3, you have God calling Jonah, and you have the pagans repenting, the Ninevites. In chapter 2, you have Jonah praying. And in chapter 4, you have Jonah praying, and you have God responding to both prayer. So we'll consider chapter 4 next week. But for this chapter, I want to see if you had the sermon card, it might have said something like Jonah in Nineveh, but I, I changed the, chap- the, the, the sermon title to better fit the text to this, the God who relents from disaster, because that's really the big idea of this whole passage, the God who relents from disaster. But it does raise this question, how is it that God is able to forgive How is God able not to hold them accountable for their crimes against humanity? And we'll consider this chapter in the three parts you see up there. Deja vu, verses 1 through 4. Nineveh repents, verses 5 through 9. And then God relents in verse 10. So first look at me with me at verses 1 through 4. Deja vu. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, as it says there in verse 5, which we will come to. So first we see here, this point is called deja vu because it's a repeat. In chapter 1, God gave Jonah three commands. Arise, go, and call out. And those same exact three words are repeated here in chapter 3. Jonah, arise, go, and call out. Of course, in chapter 1, instead of arising, Jonah went down to Joppa. There's all these word plays that run through the book of Jonah, particularly chapter 1. He went down to Joppa instead of going up. He went down into the ship. He even went down to sleep. So then what happens? Well, then God hurls a storm at the ship. And so the sailors hurl the rest of the cargo off the ship, hoping to survive. And then finally, they hurl Jonah into the sea. There's all these wonderful word plays. Jonah is a brilliant literary work. But essentially, the point is pretty straightforward. God hurls Jonah into the sea to be swallowed by a fish. But a fish not to judge him, but a fish to ultimately save him, as we saw last week. So this is deja vu. Once again, Jonah has received the call. Arise, go, and call out. And this time... Jonah goes. He arises. He goes. He calls out to this great city. But there's a question, and there's a big debate among the commentators and the scholars, and they say, well, is Jonah being completely obedient? Is there being partially? I mean, they're really split on this issue. 
Because verse 4 can be read a couple different ways. Uh, it said Nineveh was a three-day journey, and Jonah only went one day in. So some say Jonah was being completely, partially obedient. He only went one day in and starts calling out. Uh, and then others complain about the fact that his sermon was five words in Hebrew. Uh, and then others say, no, that, that's not what's going out. He really, he really was changed in chapter 2. And then the other side argues back, but wait a minute, in chapter 4 he's going to say to God, kill me. Like, that's how mad I am. Uh, so it's, it's a challenging issue. How, how are we supposed to understand this? Is, is Jonah obedient? Is he partially obedient? Well, another commentator actually has an issue, like I said, with the sermon that he gives. And I thought this was an interesting insight. He said, Jonah had just experienced the unmerited grace and goodness of God in his own life. And now he turns round and he makes it as difficult as possible for the Ninevites to experience God's deliverance. A graceless message delivered by one living in the shadow of an experience of grace. It's an interesting take. It could be right. I'm not sure. As I wrestled with this text again this past week, I kind of came to this conclusion. Maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe by worrying so much about whether or not Jonah's being obedient, we've missed the point of the text. Why did God include this in the Bible? I'd even go so far as to say, I think Jonah is an unfortunate name for the book in one sense. Because Jonah's not the main character in the book of Jonah. God is. Oh, certainly Jonah is a central character, but the book of Jonah is teaching us about God. That's why it's God's word. It's God revealing himself to us through the tale of Jonah, you should say. So, the main character in the book is God, and the main theme is that salvation belongs to the Lord, as Brian showed us so well last week. So, what, I guess I just say, I don't think we need to make a decision on whether or not Jonah was being totally obedient or he wasn't. First and foremost, the point of this chapter, as we said, is that it reveals the incredible mercy and grace of God. Not only did God not judge Jonah for his complete disregard for God's command, but God also sought to use him a second time, which is why I opened with the discussion of forgiveness. God has forgiven. He has called a second time. Instead of having the fish just eat him and swallow him, which is exactly what you deserve when you turn down the almighty God and tell him to take a hike, instead he chooses to forgive him and use him a second time. Now, sadly, we live in a world where forgiveness is oftentimes linked with foolishness. It's, it's considered foolish to forgive. Uh, I saw one post one time on social media. This person said, I forgive, but I also learn a lesson. I won't hate you, but I'll never get close enough for you to hurt me again. I can't let my forgiveness become foolishness. Aren't we glad that God does not see forgiveness that way? That God does not see forgiveness as a one and done. Now, how are we at forgiveness gathering church? How are we? Do we? What type of view of forgiveness do we have? Do we have an I'm happy to forgive, but if you do this, I'm not so sure? Do we have certain lines or hedges around our understanding of forgiveness? Now, make no mistake, there are situations where, yes, you must forgive, but there also should be space. Oh, yes, relationships are infinitely complex. But that should really be the exception, and particularly when dealing with relationships inside a covenant community like a local church. See, our church covenant actually has these words in it, which are so helpful. You all agreed to this when you became members of this church. It says this, quote, We will bear patiently with one another, diligently pursuing biblical reconciliation, and seek to live in harmony with one another. It is not an exaggeration to say, however, that this is 
possibly the hardest part of our church covenant. To say that we're going to live with each other. That we're going to let love cover a multitude of sins. Because let's just be honest. People are horrible. Like, let's just be, let's just be real, right? I'm sometimes just horrible to my wife. Which is really odd, because I love her more than any other person on the planet. But sometimes I'm just a jerk. And sometimes I'm just horrible to people. Because I woke up on the wrong side of the bed, or... I accidentally got decaf coffee that morning, or whatever the reason might be. The hardest part of our church covenant is to walk in reconciliation and forgiveness. Not forgiveness which says, oh, I forgive you, but I'm just, I got a weary eye on you. But true, genuine forgiveness. There's a distinct beauty in doing life together in this kind of covenant community, where forgiveness reigns supreme. Because it's a community full of all these different people from different backgrounds and weird life circumstances. And they're learning to love and forgive. They're learning to let love cover a multitude of sins. In fact, Jesus had some strong words about forgiveness. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Do you know how serious Jesus takes forgiveness? See, this is what causes Jonah behavior in the next chapter to stand out so horrendously. Because he has been forgiven. Forgiven and called to continue on in ministry. See, there's a very real sense in which the, in which the Christian life is actually one of deja vu. One definition of deja vu is a disagreeable familiarity. The Christian life is one of disagreeable familiarity. It is one of confessing that I have failed again and I need your forgiveness. And it's one of forgiving those who have sinned against us. It's a life of disagreeable familiarity, of deja vu. God grows us and changes us in and through these relationships of forgiving and being forgiven. That's how he grows us. That's how he changes us. And that is why we will make a big deal about membership. Because in membership, it's not like you can just show up and and hang out until something bugs you and leave. You commit to the covenant, which I just read from, that we commit to bear patiently and diligently pursue biblical reconciliation. Church membership is the mechanism God has given us to grow by forgiving and being forgiven. So Jonah begins this chapter 3 by showing that Jonah has been forgiven by God and called. And through Jonah, he's going to be the means that God uses to bring Nineveh to repentance. So would you look with me at verses 5 through 9? And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The response of the Ninevites is immediate from the least to the greatest. It's incredible. You actually get this thing that Hebrew does. The, 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 the Hebrew narratives. You get what happened, and then you get the detail. Verse 5, the people heard, they believed in God, they called for fast, put on sackcloth, and they repented from the least to the greatest. Then you get the explanation. 
and 6 through 9, un- unfolding the details of how that happens. It's a repeated pattern. As you're reading your Bibles, you'll see this type of thing, uh, where you get told what happens in summary form, and then it gets into the details here. But it's interesting because there's this other question now on this section. Well, did they really repent? Uh, is it genuine repentance? Was it partial repentance? What does that look like? Well, this one we have a little bit more clear answer on because it's historically true that Nineveh did not continue in repentance. 100 years later, the prophet Nahum is going to prophesy against Nineveh again, and they're going to fall to Babylon. So clearly their repentance didn't continue on. And yet, we also have Jesus' words from Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So there was genuine repentance. Maybe the least of the greatest didn't all continue on in repentance. They certainly didn't pass it along to the next generations because of Nahum's prophecy that's to come. But there was some genuine repentance that took place in this thing. So literarily, though, here's what's going on. What you have is you have the exact foil being made, a comparison, a contrast between Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah had been called by God. He flees. He swallowed, spit back up, and called again. Like, okay, let's reboot. Deja vu. Let's try this again, Jonah. Let me give you another chance. You get the exact opposite with the pagan Ninevites who are famous for skinning people. Instead, God calls out five words in Hebrew. And what do they do? Instantly repent from the least to the greatest. The pagans are far more spiritually sensitive and humble than even the Hebrew prophet. From a story perspective, you're being shown the foil, the the great contrast. And moreover, many commentators have noticed that Jonah is also an example, a picture, if you will, of Israel as a whole. That he's kind of representing Israel and their hard-heartedness and their repeated calls from God to repent throughout the whole Testament and how they just continue to harden their hearts. But once again, here we see the shortest of all the prophetic denunciations in Nineveh turns. It's, It's a shaming of Israel has book after book after book a prophetic warning of God calling, of God pleading, turn, turn, please, turn. It's a shaming. And Tim Keller has actually brought this out that uh, in his book, Jonah, the Prodigal Prophet. He, he shows you how the Ninevites and Jonah and Israel are, are the same type of picture you get with the prodigal sons, the two lost sons. Nineveh is like the younger brother who's just casting off God's law and doesn't care. And Israel is kind of like the older brothers. Oh, yeah, no, we're God's people. We're God's chosen people. But they're both completely denying God's rule and reign in their life. See, there's this deep irony that Jonah, the prophet from northern Israel, is preaching to the people and bringing about the repentance of the people who will then bring about the destruction of northern Israel. What is that all about? We'll consider that a little bit more next week because of all this is God appointing these things. But in reality, here's the issue. Both Nineveh and God's chosen people, they are both denying God's lordship in their life. But what is startling and what's meant to grab you is just how quick they repent. That's the point. It happens so fast because you're supposed to go, wait a minute, like Israel never turned that fast. Like never. They, they never turned that fast. They always was like, had to, you know, hit me again. They, they constantly had to just keep going through these motions before they finally got it. So by way of illustration, let me draw this out like this. Christian, what does it say about our priorities when secular culture is more upset by tragedy and injustice than we are? What does it say about our 
priorities, about our motives, about what we, we find to be most valuable. We spoke today in the catechism about God's reconciling of all the earth eventually. That doesn't mean universalism, but what it means is that God has a desire to redeem creation. Romans 8, we saw that. You know, how we respond to growing debates about the border and security and open borders or closed borders. How we respond to things like when gun violence happens and we go post Second Amendment things. Those are very distinct lines in the sand that we're drawing. And we're taking a firm stance on something. And I would even go so far as to say maybe we're saying we're more American than Christian in those moments. See, non-Christians are absolutely right to ask us and look bewildered and maybe scratch their heads at the implications of the Good Samaritan story when we consider our borders. Oh, that's a complicated issue. And there's sovereignty of nation and there's legal ways to do immigration, all those other types of things. But friends, at the very least, when we have secular people saying, don't you see people are suffering? And shouldn't that cause us to at least not just put up another flag, but at least say, no, God is a God who's redeeming, who's looking to redeem, to put back the broken. It's so easy to slip into trusting the sovereignty of our nation in borders or in our amendments than it is to trusting the sovereign God, the king. And this is exactly where Jonah was at. Because Jonah's fleeing from the Lord, it seems, as, as Matt brought out in chapter 1, that he, he likely has an idea of what's coming. He potentially sees that one day Nineveh is going to cause Israel great, great trouble. And so many commentators agree that basically he's being a nationalist in this sense. He's like, I don't want them to repent because I don't want this big, bad superpower threatening Israel, my homeland. And he's far more concerned with his people and their safety than he is for God's glory and the salvation of lost sinners. You see, friends, there's a reason why Paul desired that nothing else be put as a stumbling block other than the gospel. Because the gospel's enough of a stumbling block. So when we plant our flags in the ground on particular issues that keep people from even being able to hear the gospel, friend, I just want to say, I think we need to be very, very careful. We need to be very willing to acknowledge that we can hold really strong views in the political sphere and and all those other things. But that's not the best foot forward when we're seeking to be a light in a dark place. Now, a second point of application flows from this is that since salvation is from the Lord, salvation belongs to the Lord, that should show us that no one is beyond salvation. No one is too far gone. There's no one who's just like, oh, they're just, they're just never going to listen. There's no chance. We are not allowed to think that way. One scholar put it this way. It's perhaps surprising, having focused so much attention on the effort to get Jonah to Nineveh, two and a half chapters, that all of a sudden, chapter three, when he finally gets there, there's one verse about what he does there. One verse, verse four. He shows up and he speaks five words in Hebrew. That's it. Prominence is given to Nineveh's repentance, to their turning. So in other words, from a storytelling perspective, the most prominent part of this chapter, it seems, is the instantaneity and the breadth of their repentance, of their turning to the Lord. If salvation belongs to the Lord as Jonah prayed, then there's never anyone who is beyond God's reach. The hand of the Lord is never shortened so that he cannot save. So instead, the question will be, is, will we be a people who proclaim his grace and goodness? One 
of my favorite theologians has said it this way. When I come across a congregation that is reluctant to evangelize, what it really means is they don't cherish the gospel enough. Mark Dever, in his little book that we give away, What is a Healthy Church, says the same thing like this. When a church is healthy and its members know and cherish the gospel above everything else, they will, be increasing, they will increasingly want to share it with the world. The supreme indictment that you can bring, bring against a church who doesn't share the gospel and evangelize is that such a church lacks in passion and compassion for human souls. A church is nothing better than an, ethic, an ethical club if its sympathies for the lost souls do not overflow and if it does not go out and seek to point lost souls to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Friends, I hope you see how much this book pulsates with a call to be evangelists, to be faithful proclaimers to those around us. Uh, we have some great books uh, in the bookstall on evangelism. I'd highly encourage you. I've been reading through a few uh, new ones as well myself. But one of my favorites back there is called Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman, Not the Singer. Um, it's, it's an excellent book. And he shows you how to deal with evangelism, particularly in, in, in very uh, combative situations. Uh, superb book, highly recommend it. Um, we're, we're out of it right now, but Rico Tice's little book, Honest Evangelism, is great. I just put three copies of Evangelism as Exiles by Elliot Clark up there. And we mentioned the men's retreat theme will be evangelism. We're going to give every guy on the retreat the little hardback book by Matt Stiles, Evangelism, how the church does evangelism together. But we have this great opportunity in the summertime where people come out from their holes like hobbits and we, you know, free up our eyes, invite people over for a barbecue, get to know them enough. So when it does turn back into, you know, 48 hours of darkness before we see the orb, you know, that we can have them over for dinner. Uh, Rico Tice says it great in his little book, Honest Evangelism. He says, there, you know, some, oftentimes the reason we don't evangelize is because we're afraid of getting hit. It's going to sting. Friends, Jonah could not be a better example. The people... He evangelized, eventually became the people who attacked his nation. But that's not up to us. See, friends, fruitfulness in evangelism is not on us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We're called to faithfulness. You see, there's, there's this beautiful thing that we have going on here with salvation being of the Lord is that we just obey. We just declare. That's what God told him to do. He didn't say go save people. He said, get up, go, and call out. So we're called to faithfulness. All authority belongs to Jesus. He is Lord. He is King. He is Savior. We're proclaimers. That's what we're called to do. And with the King of Nineveh, our job as we proclaim is to be those who say, who knows? God may turn. God may relent so that they may not perish. Which brings us to our last point. God relents. Verse 10 with me. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, <clears throat> God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, at first glance, this uh, is a very simple enough verse. Nineveh turned from their ways, so God relents, turns from his. This is actually very much Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. This is what God says. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. It seems like a very straightforward, simple verse. However, the more you start to think about this verse, the more complex and naughty it becomes. Because here's the thing. What does it mean for the all-knowing God to change his mind? What does it mean for the God 
who is omniscient, who has decreed the end from the beginning, what does it mean for him to change his mind? Clearly, God knew the Ninevites were going to repent. It's not like all of a sudden he's like, whoa, holy cow, I didn't know that was going to happen. Like, no, he knew. So what does it mean for the God who knows when Jonah preaches that they're going to repent to relent? Do you see the problem? The more we consider who God is, the harder it gets because he is the immutable God, the unchanging God. So how do we work these things out? Well, the first step is this, is that we have to be very careful that when we predicate a verb, when we apply a verb to one person, it's not identical to another person. So for example, if I say, I created a city, what does that mean? Well, it depends. If I'm a city planner, I might mean that I designed a city. Or it might mean I play a lot of Minecraft and Sim Earth. It just depends. But what does it mean when we say God created the heavens and the earth? It's the same verb, but it's a radically different concept. They're not in the same realm, but it's the same exact verb. So when you take the verb of humans repenting to turn and you apply it to God, what does that mean exactly? Well, we could do entire class on this. But I think the simplest way to explain this is that this is what theologians have called accommodated language. It's, it's language that is given to help us learn something about God. That's the purpose of it. John Calvin put it like this. God talks to us in baby talk. As a mother stoops to talk to her child, so God speaks to us in such terms that we may grasp his truth. Specifically on this issue of God relenting, here's what he said. Because our weakness does not attain to his exalted state, the description of him that is given to us must be accommodated to our capacity that we may understand it. Neither God's plan nor his will is reversed, but what he had from eternity foreseen, approved, decreed, he pursues with uninterrupted tenor. However, sudden the variation may appear in our eyes. We're learning about God with this language. So don't overly read the verb and try and make it say more than it says. The whole Bible has to inform our understanding of this text and this verb. But So here's the thing, this God stooping. Do you understand that? You've seen this before, right? You ever seen a little, a little kid come up to you and they say something and you're like, you are speaking gibberish. And then the mom comes over and says, oh yeah, you want a bagel? Like they, moms have like kid radar, they, they like hear it perfectly, right? Or, or maybe you, you say something to a child and the child just looks at you with these eyes like, you're an alien. But mom says something and the kid's like, yeah, no problem, I got that. God stoops. He accommodates himself. He speaks to us in language we can understand. And what he's trying to get us to understand is that he's a God who's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, as it goes on to say. He's revealing his mercy and grace. And at the very least, he's demonstrating his long suffering nature and his willingness to forgive. As Ezekiel 18.32 says, turn, why would you die? I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. See, but to the first readers, this would have meant even more. No, to the first readers, this had a stinger in the tail. Because here's why. These words to the first readers would have landed like an echo. See, we hear certain things and it just instantly brings to mind. You hear four score, and you're brought back. Well, to them, these words would have brought them back. Here's why. 
To the Israelites, Jonah 3.10 borrows language from a story of their past. And not just any story. Kind of one of like those stories. The defining stories. Because these exact same words. That the Lord relented of the disaster that he said he would do to the Ninevites. That's the same exact language used of Israel in Exodus 32 in the golden calf. That God relented of the disaster that he was going to bring about them. Because they too idol worshipers. They too cast off God. They wanted him for his gift of freeing them from Egypt, but they didn't want him. One commentator put it this way, this is meant to humble the Israelites. No longer can they look down on other nations for their evil, delighting in their coming judgment when they themselves have been just as evil and just as much in need of the Lord's mercy and grace. If Israel received this needed mercy, this relenting of God, then they should not desire for another nation not to experience it. So as we'll see next week, though, this is the crux of the issue for Jonah. He abhors the Ninevites, and he genuinely does not want God to be merciful to them. But that's what makes Jonah's outrage next week so incredible, because it's right here in verse 10, that God's people had been those who had experienced God's relenting far, far, far before Jonah was even born. Hence, you can see the layers of irony when Jonah says in chapter 4, I knew you were gracious and merciful. Yeah, he knew it because his people's story depended upon it. And his own story depended upon it because God called. And he said, take a hike. So this accommodated language is speaking to us about God, his incredible mercy and grace in this chapter. But that brings us to another element we must consider. God's mercy and grace had an expiration date. Did you catch that? He said, what? 40 days. God's mercy and grace had an expiration date. Now that strikes us as kind of weird, but in reality, that's exactly what it was. In 40 days, you repent or you burn. That's what it was. But here's the thing. God's call always has an expiration date. Because see, none of us are promised tomorrow The highway is full of opportunities to die. The big one in Oregon, quake could come and the building could fall. Like none of us are promised an hour, let alone a year or a decade. But see, I want to push a little further and say that I think this text actually would argue that there is not just a physical expiration date, but there's a spiritual expiration date on God's call to repentance. Here's here's what I mean. You see, every time you sit under the word preached, God declares his lordship to you. And you are either bowing a little more and honoring him a little more and thanking him a little more or you're moving away from him. There's no way to look at a king and say, maybe. See, we, we live in uh, America, so you can, you can switch parties and you can go in between and, you know, there's all these things. But it doesn't work that way in the ancient world. It didn't work that way with kings. Imagine standing before Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or Caesar or Genghis Khan and being like, you know... I'm just not really sure. You seem a bit tyrannical. I mean, I like your parties. You know, I like, I like the fact that our borders are safe because nobody wants to fight you. But I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to weigh my options. And then, you know, maybe, hopefully before I die of natural causes, uh, at that point, you know, then maybe I'll decide to, to follow you. What do you think Neb or Pharaoh or Genghis Khan would have done? You're dead. That's what happens. He kills you. Friends, there's always an expiration date on God's call to repentance. Always. Every single time the word goes out, you are either hardened or you're softened. 
You either move towards him in honor and worship and awe, or you move away from him, thumbing your nose at him. As a matter of fact, I would say that walking outside is the exact same thing. The argument of Romans 1 goes like this. All of creation declares the glory of God, and you either turn and bow, or you harden your heart, and you don't thank him. And you worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Bilbo is exactly right. It is a dangerous thing to go outside your front door, Frodo. Because it means you're culpable. You're held accountable. The moment you walk outside, that's either God's world or I don't really care. And so the same thing happens when we sit under the word preached. And I know sometimes this angsts us and and maybe can make us feel like, I don't know about this guy. He seems a little stodgy to me. But Jesus said this very thing in John 8, 45. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. It's not all though. It's the act of declaring the truth that causes their unbelief. The word never returns void. It either hardens in judgment or it softens in salvation. And there's no third option. There's no in between. There's no turn lane. So practically, here's what this means. If you are here and you're not a Christian, you're visiting with us, we are so glad you're here. We are so thankful that you have come and that you're willing to sit under the word. But I also have to give you a warning. That, friend, there's no walking out this door and staying neutral. There's no way to come in and leave and just say, that was, that was nice. You're either moving towards him, oh, maybe slowly, oh, yes. Or you're slowly moving away from him. You're just saying, I, I think I could trust that king. Or you're thumbing your nose at him. There's no in-between. There's no neutrality. But this issue of no neutrality is incredibly important for Christians as well. Because we've seen at least some of the Ninevites genuinely repented, and yet a hundred years later, they were being destroyed. That means the generation didn't carry on the word. It means that we had better be a people defined by repentance and forgiveness and being shaped by his word. As John Owen said in his his magisterial book, The Mortification of Sin, it's a hard read, but one everyone should chew through, he wrote this. There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed on, and it will be so while we live in this world. There's, There's every single day, sin is either foiling or being foiled. That's it. And he goes on to say this. If we neglect to make use of what we have received, God may justly hold his hand from giving us more. His graces, as well as his gifts, are bestowed on us to use, exercise, and trade with. Not to be daily mortifying sin is to sin against the goodness, kindness, wisdom, grace, and love of God who has furnished us with the principle of doing it. See, friends, Jonah 3 shows us that God is slow to anger and abounding in mercy and grace. And that God has given us a means of grace, a means of repentance to look around at the world which declares his glory and his word which proclaims his mercy and grace. But Jonah 3 gives us this historical fact that it happened in real life in Nineveh, but it doesn't tell us how. We're back to the same problem at the beginning. How is it that God is able to forgive? God wasn't the one filleted. He wasn't the one skinned. So how is it that God is able to forgive? Well, here's why. Because, see, friends, all sin is ultimately, finally, against God. See, when we cheat on our taxes, God is the most offended party. 
When we lie, God is the most offended party. When someone commits adultery and then has their mistress's husband assassinated, as David did to Bathsheba and Uriah, God is the most offended party. To prove it, David's prayer in Psalm 51 says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, on one level, that's nonsense. He clearly sinned against Uriah. He had him murdered. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the whole kingdom. There was no one David hadn't sinned against. Where does he get the cheek to say, I sinned against you only, God? Because at the deepest sense, you cannot sin against anyone else without first sinning against the God who made them. Because to lie to someone is to not value them and not value the truth. And they are God's creature. And it is God's truth that you're not valuing. Every sin is a sin ultimately against God. And since all sin is ultimately against God, then the Ninevites were exactly right to say, who knows? God may turn. God may relent. They could undo, they could not undo their murderous ways, but they could cast themselves on the one to whom they'd sinned against the most. The most offended party. This is why... Jesus made everyone so upset in Mark 5 when they, they come in and they drop the guy down and through, through the roof. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And they're livid. How dare you? It's because he's God. Because God can forgive sins. Oh, and by the way, I'm also going to let him walk too. I'm going to heal him. Because sin always means that God is the most offended party. So God was able to relent. He was able to forgive. Because he didn't relent for Jesus. See, in the garden, Jesus said, is there any way you could relent? Nevertheless, your, Lord, your will be done. God relented on Jonah and forgave him and sent him out again. He relented against Nineveh because he cast the full wrath against Jesus in place of those who would turn and say, who knows? Maybe God will turn. Maybe God will relent. God is the God who relents from disaster. Because Jesus is the one who took disaster in our place. A friend, if that is you today and you're wondering how this works practically, I'd love to talk to you more. I'll be standing in the back hallway. There'll be folks up here after service who would love to speak with you more. But I hope you see what a wondrous, incredible thing it is that God is a God who relents from disaster. Would you pray with me?